Hey, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of Acts, the story of the church. Acts chapter 20. We're going to be picking up the story of Paul as he's heading back to Jerusalem for the very last time. He's going to be on the home stretch of testifying for Jesus as he heads back to Rome to give his very life for the sake of the gospel. This is a message today about stewardship. It's about giving. It's something uh, that some churches avoid because they think it's offensive. I'm telling you, I preach about it because it's one of the principles. Learning stewardship is one of the great principles that Carla and I have learned about helping our lives better align with God, to know more of his truth, to see him working more in our lives, and to experience the blessing that he talks about. And by the way, the blessing in giving, I want to make very, very clear, the blessing in giving is not necessarily more money or more resource or wealth or health or anything else. It's so much more than that. In fact, you're going to see today in some of the examples we're going to show you that some of the poorest, most severely tried people in the world who are most faithful with their giving were more blessed than the wealthy of the world who knew nothing about what true blessing is really about. And so today... We're beginning on this phrase that Paul said that Jesus taught him that it is more blessed to give than to receive. The context is in the book of Acts chapter 20. As I mentioned, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He knows that hardships are waiting him. He doesn't know what they're all going to be, but he knows he's going to be imprisoned, and he knows it's ultimately going to cost him his life to stand true to the gospel. He calls these elders together on a beach 30 miles south of Ephesus to meet him near the ship on his way back. And this is what he tells them in verse 32 at the end of his message. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray for a moment. Father, this is a powerfully important message for me, for Carla, for our kids and our grandkids. This is a powerfully important message for every one of us. And I'm praying, God, that you will open up our hearts and minds today to hear you. Many people have already learned this blessing, but there are so many others who need to embrace it. And God, may this be the year that we do. And we'll thank you, God, for all that you'll show us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jack Hayford, who was the founding pastor of the Church on the Way in Van Nuys, in his book called Giving the Key to Everything, was telling about a time in his childhood when he had a huge financial moment and he blew it. Here's how he told the story. It was one of the most exciting possibility moments in my young life. And I choked. That is, my emotions were so excited, they jammed and virtually immobilized my powers of thought. It was Thanksgiving Day, and along with other guests and family, my Aunt Margaret had arrived. She was a woman of a rather queenly disposition, gracious and loving, but born along on something of an air of royalty, dignified and noble. Her husband, who had died some years before, had been the mayor of the small Midwestern city where she had lived for years, and something of being first lady never quite left her. She was 
wonderful. And this Thanksgiving, wonderful was about to reach new proportions because Aunt Margaret had just grouped the three of us kids in a corner of the living room, my brother, my sister, and me, and made an offer. Children, she began grandiosely, it's Thanksgiving. And I want you to tell me everything you can, as long a list as you wish, everything for which you are thankful today. And for every single thing you're able to think of, I'm going to give you 50 cents. Well, before you read further, he said, I want to ask you to pause with me and evaluate this moment. Not only is 50 cents still a significant amount of money for a school child, but in terms of the relative value of U.S. currency when this offer was made, this was real money. Aunt Margaret was a fairly well-to-do woman, and she wasn't offering peanuts. In the values of the 1940s, we'd be looking at something a little closer to five bucks a crack. I'm talking big money here. And there I stood on the brink of eternal wealth. My economic senses set my emotional juices pumping at a rate sufficient to skyrocket my mind to hyperspace proportions. Fort Knox being an immediate view. And I froze. Absolutely could not think. I fumbled, I sputtered, I struggled with such gargantuan possibilities, and I managed to come up with mama, daddy, our house, our family. That's it. It's a sad commentary on anyone's imagination, regardless of age. Today, I can think of mega millions of things. How about Aunt Margaret, for starters? And then her fingers, her toes, that's 20 times 50 cents right there, and on into infinity. I ended up getting a measly two bucks. It's an unforgettable day of missed opportunity. And whenever I think of abundance as a possibility, that episode from my early life comes to mind. There's something very telling about that story, for it reaches to the core of a basic blockage which is potential in all of us. That when your mind is so preoccupied with getting, it paralyzes your ability to think about giving. Hayford said he was so focused on what he was about to get, he couldn't even think of how to give thanks. That same preoccupation with getting or keeping what we have can rob us of the blessings that Paul was talking about, the ones the Lord Jesus himself taught Paul. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that that loss never happened to the people he loved. So here in Acts 20 and 21, we find the record of Paul returning to Jerusalem for the last time. He had traveled widely. He had established churches across the empire. He had seen thousands of people come to Jesus. And now he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem before the Feast of Pentecost. And so he bypasses Ephesus, that great regional center. You remember the last time he was there, it erupted in a riot in the main Colosseum. So he bypasses Ephesus and has the leaders, the elders of that church there, travel 30 miles south to meet him on the way back on the beach there at Miletus. And when they arrived, he poured out his heart to them in a message some have called his mini-epistle. 
In verses 18 to 21, he reminded them that everything he preached, no matter how hard it was to hear, was done to help them. And he focused on repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. He focused on the gospel. He was faithful to the message. And in verses 22 to 25, he relates his plans to go to Jerusalem and that he will never see their faces again on earth. But he wants to complete the task of testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ. He's going to be faithful to the mission. In verses 26 to 31, he exhorts them to stay strong in the face of persecution and to guard themselves from apostasy and spiritual erosion from within and that they are to guard the flock that is under their care. He admonishes them, like him, to stay faithful to the ministry. And then in the closing of this mini-epistle, in verse 32, in this conclusion, he says, Never covet the things of earth, and by God's grace, always be ready to experience the blessedness of being a giver. Paul said in verse 35, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This exact wording is nowhere to be found in the Gospels. The principles are there, but this exact wording is not found there. But Paul said he learned it from Jesus himself. And we know that Paul and Jesus had many conversations about his life in his ministry. And what Jesus knew and what Paul learned about the blessings of giving God wants for each of us. And we are called to be disciples. We are called to be reproducing followers of Jesus. Not just believers, disciples. And we cannot become more like Christ without learning the blessings of being a giver. And as Paul reminds us, God wants his people to experience the grace of being a blessed giver. So what did Paul teach about this giving? What did he teach the churches? What did he teach people to know this secret, the key to everything? Well, there are three things specifically that he taught to the churches that were highlighted in the, the Corinthian church. And today I want to look at those three keys. The key to blessed giving. Giving should be done purposely, Paul said. It should be done willingly, and it should be done generously. The blessing of giving comes to those who give purposely. If you turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 1, Paul writes this to that church. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. We have to learn to give with purpose. It doesn't come naturally. I've shared with you many times before that when I became a Christian, I didn't know anything about giving. In fact, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't know anything. I just heard he died on a cross. I knew I was a sinner. I heard that he died to save me and forgive me. He was buried and rose again, and I believed it. And I asked Jesus to save me from my sins, and he did. But man, I didn't have a clue about what being a Christian meant. When I went to church, I resented giving. I resented it. In fact, I didn't mind giving a dollar or two, but that's it. So when I became a Christian, started going to church, I gave about a dollar or two dollars a week. 
One Sunday, we were reminded by the pastor that God owns it all. That was a new concept to me. And he said, we should give our all in return. Now, the pastor wasn't talking just about money, but that's the way I took it. So, being the spiritual giant I was, I said to God, Lord, I'll give you everything in my wallet, knowing I only had $2 in there. I opened my wallet, and to my horror, there were the two ones and a five I forgot about. This is confession time. My first thought was, God, I've been tricked. That's what I'm saying when I'm sitting there. The ushers are coming around. The basket's getting cold, closer. I'm breaking out into a cold sweat. I'm thinking, I told God I'd give him everything. I grabbed the seven bucks. I threw it in the basket. My first thought was seven bucks a week, 30 bucks a month. I can't afford to be a Christian. That's where I started with this thing. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it's the truth. My giving was an afterthought, leftovers, no obedience, no joy, no sacrifice, no purpose, and certainly not a blessing. And boy, what God has taught me since then. I wished I'd have known it then. But you know, that's where most Christians stay stuck. Reactive giving, token gestures, not understanding what the whole offering thing is about. Thinking God needs the money or the church does. Or the pastors and Christians are just trying to get their hands in your pocket. Maybe some of them are. If they are, they should be reprimanded and exposed. People are most, for the most part, are missing out on what Jesus taught Paul. It's more blessed to give. See, Paul taught the Corinthian church to start by being purposeful. He said in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 16, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Paul taught this everywhere. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. See, Paul wrote this letter in response to their many questions about a variety of issues they were facing. And Paul had informed them that he was taking an offering from the Gentile churches to help the Jews back in Jerusalem who are being hard-pressed. The gospel has come out from the Jews, he said. Now you need to be coming back to help them. So he told them how to be purposeful givers. He told them, I want you to plan ahead. I want you to set the gift apart. I want you to bring it on Sunday because that's the day you're primarily meeting. And I want you to give it for God's purpose. Now, in his second letter to them, he taught the same principle like this. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Your giving should be planned, he said. It should be prepared. It should be a purposeful act of worship, expressing the worth of God in your life. It's an act of obedience. And when you give like this, God's able to make all grace abound at you so you'll be able to see it through. You'll actually be able to do it. 
I remember one of the first times Carla and I learned this back in Oregon. I was a youth pastor, part-time, going to school, doing janitor work. Carla was teaching at a preschool. Our co total combined income was less than $1,000 a month. Our church did a campaign. Carla and I were tithing every week, giving a tenth or more of what we had. The church asked for more for a building campaign. They didn't have any more. We were barely making it as we were. So we prayed about it. You know what? God said, I just felt like God said, I want you to give 50 bucks a month towards the building above everything else you're doing. I thought, there's no way. There's no way. The numbers don't work. But I read verses like this. It says, God is able to bless you abundantly to make it happen. People, I can't explain this to you. We wrote $50 on that pledge card, and every single month, God provided somehow 50 bucks for us to be able to give that. We didn't have it. I, I just showed up. Or we had a little money left over. Our tires didn't wear out on the car. Or our food bill was less that month. Or I, God did it in so many different ways. I can tell you what we began to learn is that God can do this. God can do this if we trust him. You see, the most consistent way to be a purposeful giver that I've ever learned is by practicing the tithe. This scares people to death. Tithe or tithing means a tenth. It was commanded by God in the Old Testament. People were required to bring a tenth of all they had, a tenth of their flock, a tenth of their herd, a tenth of their crops, a tenth of their money, as an offering to the Lord. And if you go back and study the Old Testament principle of the tithe, tithing had several important purposes. It reminded people that everything belongs to God and it comes from Him. So when a person sets apart 10% of everything they had to God first out of everything they got, God was at the forefront. And it reminded them that all the rest of it belonged to God as well, and you use it differently. Tithing teaches us that we are stewards of God's things, not owners. We come into the world with nothing. We leave with nothing because none of it's ours. We are called by God to manage his resources for his purpose. Tithing also demonstrates our love for God and our trust in him. Paul went on to teach the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7, but since you excel in everything, he said, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And God said, faithful giving like this is a test of sincerity. Do we really love God? Do we really see everything is coming from God? And do we really give as an opportunity to invest in God's kingdom and excel in his grace? Paul said, you'll know the answer to that by the way you give. And the tithe also provides for the work of the ministry to get done. See, in the Old Testament, God clearly told the Israelites that they were to bring the tithe of all those things, crops, herds, flocks, money, everything, to provide for the work of God. Here's how it worked. God said, I will put into your hands all that's needed for my work. I could just do this without you, but I'm going to put it in your hands so that when you obey and bring that back to me, you will have the blessing of sharing in the work of God. I want you to be participants with me, so I'm going to put it in your hands. 
One of the reasons so many churches struggle to get resources to do the work God has called them to do is that so few people trust or obey God even with a tithe. In fact, statistically, Pastor Glenn, our pastor of administration, reports that nationally fewer than 15% of believers actually tithe by what's based on average giving. That means, if that's true, that means more than 85% of Christians don't even invest 10% of their income in God's work. Missiologists have estimated that of all Christians just in the U.S., if they would simply tithe, give a tenth of what they get, somewhere between 160 and $170 billion a year would be available in the U.S., additional funds available to do God's work. 160, 170 billion with a B, just from tithing. At Golden Hills, the impact of tithing would be absolutely staggering. Last year in 2015, 1,656 families gave $100 or more to the Lord's work in our church. I don't see what people give. I only get the reports. It totaled about 5.8 million bucks last year, and I'm grateful for every single penny and sacrifice that many people make to be able to present those gifts to God. I'm not saying nobody sacrificing. What I'm saying is if you took that same number of people based on the average income figures for the Delta region, if all of us were tithing on what God puts in our hands, our income last year would have been two and a half times that, 13 million. Can you imagine the number? We helped start three churches last year in, in the area, helping support them. And we sent out a bunch of missionaries. Do you realize how much more could be done with two and a half times more with a church that's committed to making disciples here and around the world? I can't think of a better way to make an investment. This coming year, we figured out that it's just half the families in our church, say half are unemployed, half were destitute, half were in poverty and couldn't give a dime. If the other half, other half who are employed at any level tithed on their income, we would more than exceed this year's budget by over half a million dollars. Just if half of our people were unemployed, but the other half tithed. But you know what? The biggest impact of withheld giving is not the lack of resources, it's the blessedness people are missing. The benefit, Paul said, that in faith and priorities and peace of mind and eternal joy, they're missing out on that. We are a disciple-making church, and you cannot be a true disciple without growing in the grace of giving. I don't mean to be despairing of any church. I, believe, I thank God for every church that preaches the gospel, but not every church is a disciple-making church. Many churches are there to build crowds and to reach as many people as they can. That's great. But if you're not teaching people to be reproducing followers of Jesus, the kingdom suffers. And you can't be a disciple without growing in the grace of giving. That's why each year I ask people to join Carla and me in being tithers. By God's grace over the years, Carla, God has allowed Carla and I to get well beyond that. That's to God's glory. But the thing is that we began, we believe so strongly in this and what it's done for our spiritual walk with God and the blessing of it that we started teaching it to our kids when they were little. When our kids were little, we would, when they got to a point they could do little chores and things, we'd give them a dollar a week. And always, we'd always give it in four quarters. Because we give them four quarters and we say, look, this first quarter right here goes to God. You, you set that apart. You're going to give that on Sunday. This second quarter goes into your savings. You always want to save. And this last two quarters, you can spend it. 
you can save it up and buy something bigger, or you can blow it on a candy bar every week. That's your choice. But that first quarter goes to God, the second one goes to saving, and the rest is from God's hand to yours to spend. Our kids grew up thinking a tithe was 25%. But it wasn't the amount, it was the principle. Everything you get, the first thought is God. That's the biblical principle. And that's where the blessing comes from. I'm, gonna, I'm praying this year that God will raise up a thousand families in our church that want to enter into this blessing and be tithers. And I'm wondering today which of you would want to do this. I don't care if you're making $100 a month or a million dollars a month. The key to blessing is learning to be a purposeful giver. And tithing is one of the best ways I know to be planned and purposeful to grow in the grace of giving. In fact, I know it seems like there's no way that sometimes you can do this, but God said he'll provide it. In fact, he told us to test him in this. The only thing I know God said to test him in. Malachi 3, remember that? Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. There's a lot of ways God can provide. See, we don't give to get, but I have to tell you, in more than 35 years of being a Christian, I have never, ever, ever heard anybody come back and say, you know what, I started tithing this year, and boy, do we regret it. I've never heard it, ever. But I've heard people say, you know what? It really is more blessed to give. And not just purposefully, but Paul taught the Corinthian church that the blessing of giving comes to those who give willingly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10, he said, and here is my judgment about what's best for you in this matter, this matter of giving. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. I was reading about a country preacher who paid a visit to a farmer, and he asked him, if you had $200, would you give $100 to the Lord? The farmer said, sure would. If you had two cows, would you give one to the Lord? I sure would. If you had two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? The farmer said, hey, that's not fair. You know I got two pigs. See, most of us, like that farmer, we're willing to give what we don't have. I can't tell you how many people have told me, you know what? If I win the lottery, what is the latest one, 800 million or something? If I win the lottery, we're going to give 10% to God. I said, wow, that's great. Are you giving 10% to him now? Uh, no. And I said, then you won't when you win the lottery either. And by the way, if you know what's good for you, you'll hope you don't win the lottery. God is not asking us to give what we don't have. He's asking us to give from what we do have, from what he has placed in our hands. 
And that was the heart of Paul's message to the Corinthian church. You need to be willing to give like this. That's what God's looking for, the willingness. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10. Here's my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. That's what God's looking for. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. And the example he used to teach this was the response of the Macedonian churches. Paul was taking up an offering for the hard-pressed believers at Jerusalem, and he was anxious to get back there with it. Some of the churches had committed to help, but they hadn't followed through. But the Macedonian churches were different. These were the churches of Eastern Europe today, or north of Corinth in the area around Greece. These Macedonian churches were economically depressed. They were in extreme poverty. I don't know that any of us knows what extreme poverty looks like. It's poorer than a homeless person in America. And they were undergoing not just trials, Paul said, severe trials. They're economically depressed, they're in extreme poverty, and they're going through severe trials. Yet, by God's grace, when they heard about the suffering believers in Jerusalem and that Paul was taking up an offering, they begged Paul not to bypass them or to assume they didn't want to have a part. They pleaded with Paul, please come and take what we want to give. Amazing. I know a lot of folks today have been thrilled if Paul had passed them by. These people said, don't do it. Don't let us miss out on the blessing. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. In other words, Paul's telling the Corinthian churches, look, don't fall short. You're willing before, stay willing and give it because look what these other churches are doing. Paul said, I'm not comparing amounts you give, but your willingness as a test of your love. He told them in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. So in light of that, he advises them to test their willingness by giving what they have. The Macedonians have nothing, he said, but they're willing to sacrifice everything to have a part in this investment, demonstrating their love for God and their love for God's people. Now, Paul said, what are you willing to do to demonstrate that same love for God and his people? So many people miss out on the blessing of this because they're not willing to give what they already have. I'll do it when my income is higher. I'll do it when my debt is lower. I'll do it when my expenses go down. But they never do. 
I don't see what people give, but once in a while, people give their offerings to me. And I'm telling you, it blows me away when I know people who've been unemployed for two years, have virtually nothing, get a little bit of money in, and they take some of that out first and say, we haven't been able to give for two years and we can't really afford it now, but we can't afford to miss out. I want you to have this. Put it towards the ministry of the church. Paul called people to excel in the grace of giving. Start where you are with what you have and grow in it. That's why every year for years, I've sent out a letter to the congregation saying, look, we're taking the next step together. This year, we're looking for 800 or 900 or 1,000 families who'd be willing to take the next step of $6 a week or $7 a week or $9 a week. Carl and I are taking the step. We're inviting you to take it with us. And we're going to keep adding year after year to what we've been giving so that God gets more and more and we learn to live on less and less. And every year, people take that step with us. I've never heard anybody write back and say, man, I'm sorry we did that, ever. This year, I'm going to be sending out another letter asking people if they'd consider giving about seven bucks a week more to the new budget. That's the step Carl and I are going to be taking. God said his grace to do this will flow to those who are willing, who are willing. And not only purposely and willingly, but the blessing of giving comes to those who give generously, Paul said. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, he said this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. People who teach this stuff who say, you give and God will make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous are teaching a lie. That's not what this is teaching. God is able to multiply abundantly into the hearts of people who are generous, but it doesn't mean they'll be rich. They'll be rich in righteousness and peace and joy and blessing, but not necessarily in money. Sebastian Junger is author of The Perfect Storm and also a book called Death in Belmont. And long before he became a famous writer, he decided to hitchhike his way across the country as an interesting experience. The following story that I came across, he wrote while he was making his way through the aftermath of a blizzard in Gillette, Wyoming. He said, after two or three hours of standing and hitchhiking on the interstate, I saw a man working his way toward me along the on-ramp from town. He wore filthy canvas coveralls and carried a black lunchbox, and as he got closer, I could see that his hair was matted in a way that occurs only after months on the skids. I put my hand on the pepper spray in my pocket and turned to face him. You been out here long, he asked. I nodded. Where are you headed? California. Warm out there. 
Yep. He said to me, you got enough food? And I thought about this. Clearly, he didn't have any. And if I admitted that I did, he'd ask for some. That in itself wasn't a problem, but it would mean opening my backpack and revealing all my obviously expensive camping gear. And I felt alone and exposed and ripe for pillage. And I just didn't want to do that. 20 years later, I still remember my answer. I got some cheese. You won't make it to California with just a little cheese, he said. You'll starve. At first, I didn't understand. What was he exactly saying? I kept my hand on my pepper spray. Believe me, he said, I know. Listen, I'm living in a car back in town, and every day I walk out to the mine to see if they need me. Today, they don't. So I won't be needing this lunch of mine. I began to sag with understanding. In his world, whatever you have in your bag is all you've got. And he knew a little cheese would never get me to California. I'm fine, really, I said. I don't need your lunch. He shook his head. He opened his lunchbox. It was a typical church meal he had picked up, a bologna sandwich, an apple, and a bag of chips. And I kept protesting, but he wouldn't hear of it. So I finally took his lunch. And I watched him walk back down the on-ramp toward town. And there I stood with a bologna sandwich, an apple, and a bag of chips. Junger said, I, I learned a lot of things in college, I thought. And I, lear I learned a lot from the books on my own. I had learned things in Europe and in Mexico and in my hometown of Belmont, Massachusetts. But I had to stand there on a frozen piece of interstate to learn true generosity from a homeless man. Many people who don't like the concept of tithing tell me all the time when I talk about that, tithing isn't even taught in the New Testament, as though that's some justification to avoid giving. I tell them, you know what? You're right. Tithing is mentioned in the New Testament, but it is not taught as a New Testament principle. You're right. In fact, the New Testament standard is much higher than a tithe. The New Testament standard is way beyond a tithe. The New Testament standard is generosity. The word that Paul used, generosity, means bountiful blessing. It's the idea that it's the blessing or the giving that causes blessings to accrue and multiply to the giver, not the receiver. Tithing is a God-given standard leading to the beginning of a life of blessing. Generosity is the standard by which God's blessings multiply to the believer. And Paul told the Corinthians that the Macedonian churches exceeded in this generosity. Remember in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Sounds like a string of oxymorons. Extreme poverty, rich generosity, severe trial, overflowing joy. 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, then by the will of God also to us. And notice, the blessing isn't wealth, health, and prosperity. The Macedonians had none of that. They were still poor. They were still in the midst of trial. But what they have, only God could give. Overflowing joy and closer connection with God. That was the blessing. So many people are missing that. These people had nothing. Yet they had it all. They were storing up treasure in heaven. You remember Matthew 6? Verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look at this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, that's the word generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, that's the word for stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you can't see what this life of generosity can produce, you're living in the dark. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Look at what generosity makes. Store up treasure in heaven, which cannot be lost. Have your heart fully in God's work. Live a life of light and truth and be set free. Instead of using God and serving money, you'll be using money and everything else to serve God, Paul said. What's the result? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Years ago, Dr. Henry Jessup, who was the faithful missionary to Syria, was seeking help for support for the Syrian Protestant College in Beirut. He was told by a friend that if he wanted to learn about giving, he should call on a certain lady he knew of whom he was certain would make a considerable contribution. Dr. Jessup was astounded to find this woman living on the top floor of a tenement house in Syria. Entering the door, he found this elderly woman at her job putting bristles in the wood backs of scrubbing brushes. After eagerly listening to his story, she took a bag down from a nail on the wall and said, this is the Lord's treasury. I put a part of all I get from these brushes away until God brings me someone who has a need. Whatever is in this bag today is for you. She counted out 37 cents with tears of joy, telling Dr. Jessup how truly more blessed it is to give than to receive. And that blessing is waiting to be bestowed on all who learn this blessing, to give purposefully, willingly, and generously. And then you will stand in awe of how God blesses you, so many others, and spreads his glory and his gospel to the nations of the world. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Look at this. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, and their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Implying what? To be able to give like that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living through what we get, but we make a life through what we give. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 35, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Father, I want to thank you for teaching me some of these things. Carla's been a great example to me on what generosity looks like and what faithfulness and giving looks like. And I thank you for taking me from being a stingy, resentful giver to a guy who has experienced more blessings than I can count. And it's all for your glory. God, as we begin this new year together, as we focus together on a campaign that spreads the gospel to the nations of the world, may you help us to remember there is a blessing in this kind of obedience. And you are looking for people who will give with purpose, who will be willing, and who will be generous. And God, you will supply for them in ways a joy and a connection with you they never thought possible. Thank you, God. We commit this in Jesus' name. Amen.